You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. Oh No Lick Class, the podcast that never bothered to revise the first draft because it was up all night watching anime. That is a thing I had a student tell me once. I'm Megan. I'm RJ. I'm Scotty. From Parts Unknown. Scotty. What? You gotta introduce him like a wrestler. It's exciting. Yeah, but I'm not a spooky boy. Only spooky boys get introduced from Parts Unknown. But you breathe smoke. People can't see... It's been more than it's three. Theater of the it's mind. been more Come than on. three years. I don't know how long it's gonna take to get through your head that this is an audio medium. Today with us we have Scotty Moore, co-founder and partner of the BS Podcast Network and host of Jesus Good God Christ. Okay, yeah, you know what? That is a lot of vape smoke. <laughs> <laughs> I just love his idea that like the Undertaker comes out to the ring and vapes the whole way down there. It's gonna reinvigorate wrestling as we know it. Oh yeah. Um, how many how many podcasts do you do, Scotty? Dog, like seven, I think. I've got two on pro wrestling, an audio fiction show that's about pro wrestling, and then a normal pro wrestling, an audio fiction show about space, but it's dumb, unlike the other audio fiction shows that are smart about space. One about improv comedy, one about self-help, but mostly just helping myself. One about theme park design, and one that's an audiobook podcast. So that's it. That's all of it. And you have a kid, don't you? Yes. Do you sleep? Um, when I can, but not really. <laughs> the minute the minute that baby's like, can I have a nap? I'm like, hell yes, you can. Let's go. Yes, your your multitude of podcasts, your lack of sleeping, that helps us slide right into your ulterior motives for coming on the show today. Because even though we, we met and uh, we deeply bonded at last year's podcast movement over being in what I referred to uh, off mic, but I'm calling again the Queer Kids Corner at one of the post-con parties. <laughs> oh, yeah. I still chat with all of the people who are in the Queer Kids Corner. We are all, like, bros now. Yep. So to be clear, was the corner queer, or were the kids in the corner queer? The corner was queer because we were all <laughs> occupying it. And because it wasn't a corner at all, it was a table, so it wasn't <laughs> that much of a corner. It's true. I guess we could call it the Queer Kids Table, and because, like, directly opposite from that was all of the straight cis dudes who did podcasts about, like, politics and sports and shit. Oh, you were- I don't think you were at the table when we had to deal with the oldest cis straight white man who began with very kindly being like, I just want to ask you guys a few questions about what it's like to live. And I was like, oh, well, he wants to know. Let's get into the conversation. And then it just went straight down, straight down. It was like, oh, this is good. Ah! That was like literally our introduction is you were just like, do you want to hear about the evening I've been having? And yeah. And we, we instantly became friends. But you're a guest today to achieve your own dark ends. You are trying to, you're trying to set a, a horrible, horrible world record. 
I don't know why I decided to do it, but I wanted to set the world record for most podcast appearances in a single year. Right now I'm estimating like 320, but with each guest appearance that number goes up. I'm aiming for 500 by the end of the year. Just, uh, <laughs> The uh. look of disgust <laughs> on your face. I do not envy you, dude. So to that end, let's get things rolling with today's writer. Novelist, playwright, and screenwriter Tennessee Williams is the name behind many well-known works, including A Streetcar Named Desire, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, The Night of the Iguana, and Suddenly Last Summer. But we're not talking about those today, are we, Scotty? We're not talking about Night of the Iguana. I wish we fucking were. I really wish we fucking were. I need your listeners to know how hard I was fucking working to try to get this episode to be about holes. And you guys were like, no, we're doing this. We're living in this world now. Hey, I didn't pick this. You picked this. You said, oh, man, I'd like to do holes. And I'd be like, well, that'd be a little bit outside our usual zone. But, you know, Louis, Louis Saker, Sacker, Sacher? Sucker. I don't know how... I don't- Louis Sucker was an important part of my childhood. And then you were like, but then there's the glass menagerie. Dun, dun, dun! (laughs) I will say, first time I read this, I did not hate it. But it is also because I was a 17-year-old teenaged white straight man at the time. So yeah, this was kind of written for me. Like, that main character is like, oh, I get him. He doesn't want to be tied down to the man. He just wants to be a successful artist like me. Yeah, I love this. And then college happened. I don't know what it was, but every single year, we had to do something on Glass Menagerie. Every single year, Glass Menagerie got brought up in some way, and it just whittled us all down. I think they secretly wanted us all to hate Glass Menagerie, and they were like, hey, if we keep teaching it, they'll fucking hate it by the time they leave, and this play will never get performed ever again. So it sounds like... The Glass Menagerie for you was what Heart of Darkness was for me, where it just kept happening. Yeah. I'd throw the book away when I was done. I'd be like, surely I will never have to read this again. Oh, yeah. And with me, like, you think, like, oh, yeah, this is a fairly simple play when it comes to, like, actual theater. Surely, as the years go on, we'll get into more intense, like, Chekhov shit. And we did at points, but they'd always come back to Glass Menagerie. Like, I don't think you got it the first time we said it. Bring it back. Let's go. <laughs> we gotta we gotta go deeper. Uh, yes, the, the Glass Menagerie, which is a really fun to say, like in a weird, like airy sort of voice, like if you let your eyes go sort of unfocused, like if you're remembering a semi-traumatic event. Like you're looking at a magic eye painting. Yes, it's the Glass Menagerie. It's a sailboat, look at it. It's coming right <laughs> at me. It's a Glass Menagerie. <laughs> you just, you say it like you got kind of like knocked on the head real good. So though he was to become celebrated playwright Tennessee Williams, uh, The Glass Menagerie is the play that shot him to stardom, even if today he's perhaps maybe generally more associated with a streetcar named Desire, which, I mean, that's the one I'm way more familiar with. Yeah. And it, it, it pains me to say this, but that's largely because of that one Simpsons episode. Oh, yeah, exactly. Where March is in a streetcar named Desire. Because when it comes to plays that aren't Shakespeare... I'm basically illiterate. Well, I'm, I'm going to assume that that's also your only reference for A Streetcar Named Desire also. Peter Jones Stella, man. 
Oh yeah, that too. Stella. Stella. And yeah. and uh, hot boy with the shirt off. But he was hot. Because then he wasn't. Godfather, no? Oh. Um. <laughs> Marlon. Marlon. Marlon Brando. Yeah. Yeah. Hot, hot boy with the shirt off when he was hot boy until he wasn't. Well, he wasn't hot boy by Godfather. Let me we tell are, you this is a That's great fair. theatrical podcast where all we know about a streetcar named Desire <laughs> is a Simpsons episode, Stella, and hot boy with shirt off. Hey, Megan. <laughs> We're a literature podcast hey, for a reason. Young Morrow and Brando, 10-year war hot or not? We're over Troy. We're not doing the Odyssey no more. Oh, no. Is 10-year war hot? We're going to be on that forever? You can make shirts with that. Pop it on there. No? No, I'm not into that. He's showing me pictures of young Marlon Brando. He's really trying to... Enforce it. Yeah, he's trying to force it. All right. Is there anyone that you think, since I guess this is going to be a running thing now, who you think is hot enough that you would go to war for a decade for? Man, a decade's a long fucking time. Like, that's the problem. That's what I said. He he goes, he just, he doesn't even think about it. He just, a light switch goes off in his brain. He just goes, Gal Gadot. And I'm just like, That's right. 10 years of your life. Man, I don't fucking know. Like, Anthony Porofsky from Queer Eye, maybe? Like, maybe that? But even then. He, I know. Like, it's, it's, he's hot. Like, he's hot. But, like, 10 years of your life. Like, I would let Gal Gadot step on me, but I don't know if I would do <laughs> for 10 years. Anyway. Bottom. <laughs> for Gal Gadot, yes. Um, for everyone. <laughs> shut up. <laughs> So, like we've said on this show many times before, neither RJ or I were theater kids in school. We were unfamiliar with this play before this episode. No exposure to it in school. No idea. That's probably a good thing, because, like, I wasn't a musical theater kid. And here's- there's a difference. Normal theater kids are fucking weird, because we have to deal with shit like the glass menagerie. Meanwhile, musical kids are running around like, The world turned upside down! <laughs> and you're like, okay, we're over here trying to study the work of Tennessee Williams, thank you. <laughs> Quiet yourself. But yeah, like, normal theater kids, we get either plays like this, or plays that will make you cry and emotionally destroy you, but that's it. Like, there ain't really funny bits to it. It's just a bunch of people coming out and being like, I'm gonna talk to you today about hypocrisy. Looking straight at the audience and like, in not modern plays, we yell at people. See, Shakespeare is safe. Yeah. It's my happy place. I'm safe here. I know exactly what I'm gonna get. Misunderstood love triangles and ding-dong jokes. It's my comfort zone. I love dead kids, too. What? Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Dead kids. Yeah, they're dead teens. So, uh, before we can we can explore the true depths of your hatred and, and what is clearly, like, your deep trauma, <laughs> we must first learn about the man behind the menagerie. RJ, take us away. Thomas Laner Williams III was born March 26, 1911 and died February 25th, 1983, well after the advent of the video camera. <laughs> Which is why you can see him in interviews on YouTube, Scotty. I was so confused. You guys were like, we watched this interview. I'm like, how? What happened? <laughs> he is. It was a seance. <laughs> he is, as already mentioned, better known by his nickname, the only 10 I see, Williams. Hey. Hey. 10 was born in Columbus, Mississippi, a town with a population of just about 7,000 at the time. 
Columbus, Mississippi, nicknamed Possum Town, is known as the Friendly City. Possum Town. Possum Town. It's in Mississippi. I can guarantee it's not a friendly city. <laughs> Ten was born to Edwina Dakin and Cornelius Coffin C.C. Williams. That's a hell of a name. Oh, these are some good-ass Southern names. Yes, you're doing my Alabama heart proud right now. Cornelius was a traveling shoe salesman who was also a bit of a mean drunk. All of this meant that Cornelius was away a lot of the time, so the child-raising duties fell to Edwina. Well, Edwina's dad was an... Oh, boy. Episcopal. Yep, Episcopal. Come on, considering the Greek shit we were reading last time, Episcopal is not a reach. (laughs) I ain't down with the Gentiles. (laughs) Was an Episcopal priest, and her mom was a music teacher. As such, Edwina took Ten and a sibling, Sister Rose and Brother Walter, to live at the church Grandpappy did his priest thing at in Clarksdale, Mississippi. So why wasn't he Mississippi Williams? Is that a dumb question? We're going to learn. Okay. Daddy issues. It's always daddy it's issues. Always, that, you know what? That's a fair point. It is always daddy Oh, you issues. mean the guy who wrote Glass Menagerie has daddy issues? No fucking way. <laughs> what a big shocker, as we'll find out. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you now, we could always cut it. He takes the name like in his 20s. His dad was born in Tennessee. His abusive, drunk, shoe salesman of a dad, born in Tennessee. Yep. While still a wee lad, Ten was stricken by diphtheria, a pretty bad bacterial disease that we're able to vaccinate against nowadays. Tennessee supposedly became so frail and weak that he almost died. Daddy Williams, being the man's man that he was, and being the drunk that he was, lashed out at little old sick Ten for being so sick and frail. Never mind that Ten was nearly bedridden for a year. Daddy Williams was having none of it. You You could probably tell how rich and prosperous this family dynamic was. Thankfully, Mama Williams did her best to care for and protect little old sick Ten. You and your laziness and your diphtheria. Get out of the bed, asshole. <laughs> Good old Someone's got to do the chores. It's football season. <laughs> when Ten was eight and healed, Daddy Williams got a job at the home base of the International Shoe Company based in St. Louis, Missouri, which is right between Branson and Bronson, Missouri. Oh. And there's your Simpsons joke for the episode. <laughs> hey, bye. <laughs> So cookies. Bronson, Missouri. <laughs> this ain't over. I made that joke so many fucking times. Well, here we go. It's perfect. It was here that Ten would spend the rest of his formative years, although they were anything but calm. The family moved around St. Louis quite a bit. On the one hand, Mama Williams was always looking for the perfect house, which she never found. And on the other hand, you had drunkard Daddy Williams, who wore out his and his family's welcome in a number of stops. So you got one parent who... Was just never happy in any house. And then the other parent who picked fights with all just, the neighbors. Just, just so in discord. Yep. It sounds like a lovely way to grow up. Ten attended Soldan High School for part of his high school career. Soldan is home of the Tigers. See, there's a Cromulan, I'll be a boring and tired school mascot. Everybody's the fucking Tigers. Soldan has a long and treasured history of alumnus, including... Charles Richard Stith, who I am sure you all remember, as the United States Ambassador to Tanzania from 1998 to 2001. Perhaps oh, yeah. the best ambassador to Tanzania we've ever had. Oh, yeah. Such such good am- ambassadoring to Tanzania he did. Charles Richard Stith. The shit that you bothered to look up, I swear to God. <laughs> I called color. After Soldan, Ten took his talents to University City High School, home of the Indians. Mm. But, you know, in the racist mascot kind of way. Mm. At least they're the Lions nowadays, uninspired but less racist. By the way, University City High School's most famous alum, 
Nelly. It's getting hot in her. You know, because it's summer, fam. Was there not a, a wealth of things about fucking celebrated playwright Tennessee Williams that you had to dig around for, for Nelly? Nelly? <laughs> Nelly's great. When I think of St. Louis, I think Nelly. Name another Nelly song right now. I'll pay you a dollar. He wears a Band-Aid on I his face. I will pay you a dollar. <laughs> and he got the St. Louis hat. Right now, if you name a second Nelly song. Nope, don't look at your phone. <laughs> Name me one more Nelly song. Pussy. <laughs> I don't think that's it. <laughs> no. If you want to go and take a ride with me, take a hit in the <laughs> back of the LBC. Why must I feel this way? way? Hey, oh, must, must be, be the money. money. Must be the money. At the age of 16, Ten got an essay entitled, Can a Good Wife Be a Good Sport? A timeless inquiry published in The Smart Set a publication that had wide readership and was sought out by writers. Jack London, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Theodore Dreiser, O. Henry, and James Joyce were all contributors to the magazine, so Ten was in good company. A year later in the magazine Weird Tales, which was the first home to Lovecraft's Cthulhu series at the same time, Ten published the short story The Vengeance of Nicochris. The short story is about a sister who avenges her brother's death by getting all of his enemies to come over for dinner, locks them in a room, and then literally opens the floodgates and drowns them all. Hi, buddy. Okay, calm down. Calm down there, Tim. Why did they make a play about that? After ensuring all their debts and knowing that she would be punished for her retribution, she locks herself in her bedroom and lights it on fire and dies via asphyxiation. Holy shit! Hardcore shit, man. Clearly, Tennessee when he was 17 years old, was an edgelord. Go figure that he was published in the same magazines as Lovecraft, the ultimate racist edgelord. Yeah. Despite these early bylines, it would take another decade for Ten's writing's career to take off. Upon graduating high school, he enrolled at the University of Missouri, another school that utilizes the Tigers as their mascot. I guess Missouri is a land of many tigers in small imagination. Ten enrolled in journalism classes, which bored him, and his free time was taken up by chasing a woman who never gave him the time of day. In between all that, he wrote two plays, Beauty is the Word and Hot Milk at Three in the Morning, which is quite the euphemism for 1930 if I ever heard one. Hot milk at three in the morning. Because I've lost control of my life. <laughs> He entered the plays and writing competitions on campus, and he became the first freshman to ever be awarded for writing. In an attempt to extend his social circle, Ten joined Alpha Tau Omega fraternity. Now, I was never a frat guy myself. However, I gotta say, Alpha Tau Omega has quite the member list. The two that stuck out to me are Bugs Bunny. Yes, really. Old Bugs was initiated by the University of Kentucky chapter. What? And Guy Fieri. I mean... Yes! (laughs) Yes! Diners, drive-ins, and dives! Yes! I wouldn't mind walking into a bar with bugs and guy flanking me. I could do a lot worse. I have so many questions right now. Yeah? Like, why wasn't Nelly part of this rap, too? <laughs> it was too hot in there already. They're more of a lukewarm kind of crowd. How does a bunny get into fraternity? University of Kentucky, need I say more? <laughs> anyway... Ten didn't do so well in a frat, so then he tried some ROTC courses, and that didn't work out either. No! (laughs) No, do tell! (laughs) After flunking out of the military training course, Daddy Williams re-entered the picture, not having raised no weak boy of a son, and removed Ten from school. 
That boy needed structure. Fuck graduating with a degree. And so Ten was forced into a nine-to-five job at International Shoe. Oh, that sucks. Ten, being a writer and an academic, the nine-to-five life didn't do much for him. In fact, it drove him to write nonstop while outside of work. He began to write one story a week, a goal that he set for himself. His mother said of this phase, quote, Tom would go to his room with black coffee and cigarettes, and I would hear the typewriter cooking away at night in the silent house. Some mornings when I walked in to wake him for work, I would find him sprawled, fully dressed across the bed, too tired to remove his clothes. As you'd probably guess, this would not uh, be a sustainable lifestyle for very long, and it wasn't. After a couple of years, Ten decided he had had enough. He quit his job, specifically after a nervous breakdown. This did not please Daddy Williams at all. But it wasn't much later that Mama Williams separated from Daddy due to his anger and alcohol issues, although the two were never formally divorced. It was 1936. At the age of 25, Ten decided to go back to school, this time Washington University in St. Louis, before going on the Oh No Lit Class Tour, the University of Iowa, graduating there with a bachelor's in English, before hopping over to New York City, where he studied at the dramatic workshop of the new school. Yeah, all right, that's it. He's ticking off writer bingo. It was here where he studied as a playwright that he fell in love with the theater. He said of this time, quote, the laughter enchanted me. Then and there, the theater and I found each other for better and for worse. I know it's the only thing that saved my life. It was then he adopted the name Tennessee Williams as his professional name. Tennessee being the state his father hailed from. Daddy issues anyone. Yeah. I just love like the laughter is what encaptured me. And that's why I wrote the glass menagerie. <laughs> because of the laughter, yeah. I mean, well, The most comedic <laughs> play of all time. I mean, it's not like... Fucking cat on a hot tin roof or streetcar named Desire or fucking laugh riots either. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's tough times for everybody. Do it, Meg. Say it. What? Tough times. Tough times, baby. Isn't it hard times? Hard times, baby. <laughs> You're the one who knows wrestling, not me. I shouldn't be correcting you. It's on hard this. times, hard Daddy. Times, you want to hard times? The American Dream, Dusty Rose, he knows hard times. <laughs> Well, it's hot times, baby. It was the 1930s and everything, not to mention how hard it was for writers generally. Ten moved around, tried to break in, landing in California for a bit, where he worked as a caretaker on a chicken ranch. Why not? He moved to New Orleans to take in some culture. He won a Rockefeller grant based on his writing, which garnered some attention from MGM Studios. He signed a six-month contract that paid him $250 a week, or the equivalent of $4,500 a week today. What the fuck? Yeah, not a bad gig. Holy shit. It was only six months, though, so, you know. I'll take it. <laughs> At the age of 33 in nineteen forty, Four and a half grand a week for six months? Yeah. It's a good contract. It's a good contract. At the age of 33 in 1944, he wrote the focus of today's episode, the Glass Menagerie. You gotta do it right. Glass Menagerie. Glass Menagerie. Which was an adaptation of a short story he wrote a year earlier. The play took off once it hit Broadway, as it was a smash, and was voted as the best play of the season. The director of many of Ten's plays said, Everything in his life is in his plays, and everything in his plays is in his life. His next play, just a couple of years later, took him to even greater heights, A Streetcar Named Desire. Ten now, having had the means to, took a whirlwind tour to see the world to, quote, stimulate his writing. New York, Nolens, Key West, Rome, Barcelona, and London. I think this is the kind of trip I need to stimulate my writing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, maybe I can expense it as a business expense or as a self-employed continuing education. There must be some way. Yeah, figure it out. 
Williams said at this time, quote, only some radical change can divert the downward course of my spirit. Like Key West or Barcelona. or <laughs> Some startling new place or people to arrest the drift, the drag. He followed up those two smashes with a string of other successes, Summer and Smoke, The Rose Tattoo, Camino Real, Cat on the Hot Tin Roof, Orpheus Descending, Garden District, and The Sweet Bird of Youth. By the end of these plays, it was 1959, he was 48, he had earned two Pulitzer Prizes, three New York Drama Critics Circle Awards, and a Tony. Around the same time, his plays began to get the silver screen treatments, including the two biggest hits, The Glass Menagerie and The Streetcar Named Desire. During this time, Ten was not alone. He did try dating women initially, but that did not work out all that well. In New York, he became involved in the gay social circle where he met some eligible bachelors. He became quite infatuated with a dancer named Kip Kiernan, who left Ten to marry a woman. Kip died shortly thereafter, which left Ten to straw. On a trip to Taos, New Mexico, Ten met Pancho Rodriguez y Gonzalez, a hotel clerk. Pancho was a bit too much like Daddy Williams, though, a drunk who had fits of rage, so that didn't work out long term either. Then, while on holiday in Rome, Ten met a younger man named Raffaello. And the two of them had a short fling, and Ten financially supported the younger man. Perhaps a boy, it's a little unclear, after mm. the fling ended. How, how unclear? Unclear. Just wandering from town to town, riding high, banging dudes. But all that traveling and banging was just lust. Once back home in New York City, Ten got with Frank Merlo, an actor and World War II vet. The two formed a loving, positive relationship. The two kept a home in New York and another in Key West. The 1940s and 50s and their successes gave way to the 1960s and 70s, which saw a different 10. Tennessee and Frank ended their romantic relationship, but Frank was diagnosed with inoperable lung cancer shortly thereafter, and Tennessee cared for Frank until Frank passed away a short time later. Ten was using drugs and alcohol at an alarming speed. And even though he continued to write every day because of his substance abuse issues, his writing paled in comparison to his earlier efforts. He was depressed, an addict, and he floated in and out of facilities. Ten began seeing uh, Dr. Max Jacobson, also known as Dr. Feelgood, who gave his patients, including JFK, what he referred to as a highly potent vitamin shot. Wait, were you, were you being legit? Yeah. They called him Dr. Feelgood? Yeah. Ha! Huh. These shots certainly gave a boost as they included an increasing amount of amphib- uh, amphib- Oh, man, I can't say it. You're having a hard Amphim- time. Amph- oh, fuck, I can't say it. Amphetamines, a- gentlemen. An increasing amount of amphetamines to help patients overcome their depression in malaise. So yeah, he was Dr. Phil. Can I go and feel like crap? And he shoots yeah. me full of speed. <laughs> yeah, he did that for JFK too. Huh. Because JFK had whatever that disease was called. <laughs> whatever that disease was called. Thank you. That's Explosive brain sweet. syndrome? No, it was before that. I didn't even know he had a, a thing, yeah. an issue. Addison's disease. I've never heard of that. Yeah, I think that was like one of the elections, like, they tried to use it against him. They're like, he's unfit because he's got this one little old disease. <laughs> your your adrenal glands don't produce enough. Ah. Uh. And so, for someone who doesn't have enough adrenaline, getting shot by all speed probably felt good, too. Probably. The I, all I can hear now in my head is, Dr. Feelgood. <laughs> the string of financial flops that followed wore 10 down all the more, and he did the thing that everyone tells you not to. He read the comments in the form of negative press clippings. Oh, no. The oh, thing God. is, though, looking back, it seems that these plays aged gracefully, and that perhaps critics and audiences at the time were more pissed that 10's later works were so different from his earlier ones, and they just wanted more of the same kind of hits. They were too close and too invested to appreciate what they were seeing. 10 wanted to shake off his drug addiction, never really able to, though, however. 
He did join a church for a bit, given his mother's conversion to Roman Catholicism, although later in life he denied that he took his attempt to join the church seriously. I was joining this church ironically, guys. It was a joke! God! His mother lived until 1980, passing at the age of 95. Ken's relationship with his mother was considered mixed for how she treated him and his siblings and how she ran the household when they were young. As Ten aged, he felt alone and isolated. He had had a hard time getting with his favorite younger men, and he now lacked the stability of having a functional family unit. He did have a relationship with a man named Robert Carroll, a Vietnam vet who was 40 years younger than him. Quite the life. To date both a World War II vet and a Vietnam vet. How old was he at this point? Was he still, like, hanging, going at bars, like, stumbling in, like, Palpatine? Just like, hello! <laughs> Basically, to jump on my little bones? Come on! <laughs> he was old, man. He was like a 70-year-old dating 30-year-olds. jump on my tiny little body? <laughs> <laughs> Carol was also a drug addict, which made friends see the relationship as destructive. Uh, the two stuck it out for a few years before calling it off. On February 25th, 1983, at the age of 71, Ten was found dead in his hotel room. He had choked to death on the cap of a pill bottle that he had apparently used to take his pills. Oh no. Ten had a very specific passage in his will that spoke to his wishes about being buried. I shall read. I, Thomas Lanyard, Tennessee Williams, being in sound mind upon his this subject, and having declared this wish repeatedly to my close friends, do hereby state my desire to be buried at sea. More specifically, I wish to be buried at sea at as close as possible point as the American poet Hart Crane died by choice in the sea. This would be ascertainable, this geographic point, by the various books biographical upon his life and death. I wish to be sewn up in a canvas sack and dropped overboard, as stated above, as close as possible to where Hart Crane was given by himself to the great mother of life, which is the sea, the Caribbean, specifically if that fits the geography of his death. Otherwise, Wherever it fits. I wish to be dumped wherever Godzilla returned after destroying Tokyo, Japan. Drop my body off. It's very specific. Ten's brother decided to bury Ten, according to his wishes, in a place close to the Caribbean, St. Louis, Missouri, next to Mama Williams. Ooh. (laughs) Wow. Brutal. You can't win them all, can you? Jeez. Then again... Maybe his brother was sour about not being left anything in the will. Ah. Everything was left either to Ten's older sister Rose or his last lover Robert Carroll. Mm. By the way, this Hart Crane guy was an early 20th century modernist poet who wrote The Bridge, an epic poem that attempted to rival Eliot's The Wasteland, but, you know, by being less depressing as a counterpoint. Ah. Yeah. The, the chipper wasteland. Gotcha. As for Ten, after his death, he has been celebrated. You could visit the theater named after him in Key West. There are numerous annual festivals across the U.S. that are run in his honor. And in RJ's very own special mark of making it, in 1994, the U.S. Postal Service commemorated all Ten in stamp form. So for all you philatelists out there, you can get a piece of Tennessee memorabilia. That's the only thing that counts for you, huh? Is is there a stamp? That's how you know you've made it. If the USPS has made a stamp of you, you have made it. He made it. You, Megan, have not made it. Neither of you. That's okay. I'll see a stamp of your ass anywhere. Scotty might make it after however many appearances. Oh, yeah, I've got this shit. I've got this shit on lock. (laughs) So in your world, the Looney Tunes are like gods because they had that big USPS thing running like a while back. Of course they're god. What are you talking about? You tried to even fake it? (laughs) Bugs Bunny's in a fraternity, didn't yeah. you hear? 
Yeah. He also played with Mike. There's a whole movie about this. The documentary known as Space Jam. And now they're going to be in Space Jam 2. Hey everybody, it's Megan, just popping in like always to let you know that this episode is brought to you in part by our wonderful, beautiful, amazing menagerie, yeah, you like that, of patrons, including our newest patron, Sam. Thank you, Sam. Sam and the rest of our patrons are super awesome, and you can be incredibly super awesome and pledge to our Patreon at patreon.com slash class and get all kinds of bonus content and sweet, sweet swag and just help support us, and we just really appreciate it. It's very cool, and we love you. Uh, we don't have a podcast pal again this week because y'all just are bad at doing the thing. I keep saying, if you got a podcast, send us a promo. Send it to ohnolitclass at gmail.com, and we will check it out, and we will play it here on the show, and people will hear it, and then y'all don't do the thing. So if you got a show and you want to share it with people, again, send us a promo. It don't got to be fancy. It's just, just got to tell us who you are, what you do, and, you know, obviously you should, you know, send me a link also so I can listen and check you out and see how cool you are. And, and then we'll play it, because we'll be podcast pals. And that's what pals do. That's about all for this one. This was a very short interlude to a, a very long and absolutely insane episode, as you've started to hear and will hear. So, enjoy. <laughs> Alright. The Glass. As it is menageried. The Glass Menagerie. <laughs> Goddamn fucking voice. The Glass Menagerie is a memory play which is oh, a God. term <laughs> no d- describe it first and then i'll tell you why it makes me so mad absolutely it's a term coined by williams but what does that mean according to williams's script notes he describes it as quote the scene is memory and is therefore non-realistic. Memory takes a lot of poetic license. It omits some details. Others are exaggerated according to the emotional value of the articles it touches. For memory is seated predominantly in the heart. The interior is therefore rather dim and poetic. It's basically saying that the narrator and main character, Tom, that we're getting this play from his perspective and his memory, and that there, since it's made up of his personal recollections, it is therefore not, strictly speaking, accurate. In other words... Fake news. Tom is an unreliable narrator, and that since these are his memories, he therefore feels he has the right to get real weird with it if he so chooses. But he doesn't! That's what makes me so mad! I wanted Tom to pull out a fucking lightsaber or some shit and one boy be like, yes, let's go! But no! Like, I remember I wanted to do a sequel to this where Tom was really old and started to, like, have his mind break down and tried to tell the same story. And he's like, we were on a, a planet multiple light years away. My mother was searching for a gentleman caller, but first she had to pass through the seven passages of Dago before we got there but no it's nothing fun it's just him being a pretentious asshole about it well now here's the thing though imagine if this really is the out there version of how depressing the real version is (laughs) that's horrible to contemplate but yeah no it, it gives this idea an opportunity for something interesting like that like um what was the movie with ian mckellen the sherlock holmes movie holmes 
was it just called Holmes? I think so, yeah. Where it is that he's Sherlock Holmes and that he's confusing old adventures with like his current reality and like muddling it oh, all yeah. together. Like that's a cool concept. That's Mr. Holmes. Mr. Holmes, thank you. Like that's a cool idea that you can kind of like take that sort of idea of like a memory play and and run with it. But yeah, no, this to to spoil it for all of you listening, it doesn't it doesn't really do anything. I do have the opening monologue where he describes all this if you want me to stretch my acting chops because I'm more than willing to. You can. It's, it's real pretentious. Before I do this, I do want to express the first version I saw of this play was apparently the version released in 1980s, which everyone said is garbage. But it also featured John Malkovich playing Tom. Ah, clip. He had hair. It's very disconcerting. Yes. Uh, so I have been working somewhat on a Malkovich impression, so I'll try to bring you back to the day I first saw the Glass Menagerie. Yes, I have tricks in my pocket. I have things up my sleeve, but I am the opposite of a stage magician. He gives you illusion that has the appearance of truth. I give you truth in the pleasant disguise of illusion. What the fuck does that mean, Tennessee William? <laughs> Oh no, that was a good Malkovich. I don't know, and I, it, ma- it makes me think of um, what's his face from Arrested Development. <laughs> I give you illusions. Yes. <laughs> uh, oh, to begin with, I turn back time. I reverse it to that quaint period, the thirties, when the huge middle class of America was matriculating in a school for the blind. Their eyes had failed them, or they had failed their eyes, and so they were having their fingers pressed forcibly down onto the fiery braille alphabet of a dissolving economy. What the fuck does this mean? It's just saying words at this point. Pretty much. It just kind of sounds like, it kind of sounds like the wasteland. (laughs) It also sounds like the perfect thing for John Malkovich to read. Yeah, actually. The play is memory. Being a memory play, it is dimly lighted. It is sentimental. It is not realistic. In memory, everything seems to happen to music. That explains the fiddle in the wings. (laughs) That's the other weird thing, is he describes everything in the play as the play like over there in the wings we're on a stage there's a man playing the fiddle over there because this is that kind of play yeah he's just like over there is my fucking uh, picture you know my dad who's not here he's there over there's my mom she a bitch you'll find out there's my sister you're gonna feel real bad about her in a few hours he just he spells out everything and it's extremely weird But anyway, so this memory play concept, even though he doesn't really do anything with it, was a huge deal at the time because I guess this sort of hadn't been done on a stage before. And um, I'm talking like completely out of my ass here, but like the year was 1944 when this first, because it first ran in Chicago before uh, it got picked up for Broadway in 45. Like there had been books with unreliable narrators at this point. Like this wasn't a new thing. Like, I guess when people saw a play, there was, like, the assumption that they were taking it at face value. Because it's, like, it's on a stage happening. So I guess for one of the characters to, like, look look, look you in the eye and be like, maybe things aren't as straightforward as they appear would, like, fuck you up, maybe? Like, I guess that's it. But in all honesty, it feels like, you remember when the Wii came out and everyone was like, that's just a gimmick. Like, there's gonna be no, no substance. That's what it feels like. Could have shown Ween. <laughs> um, you want to talk about 
fucking gimmicks. Oh, we're gonna get there. So, Tom comes out. He says all that shit. He talks about that they live in their crappy apartment in St. Louis. They're poor. He works at a job he hates. Their dad, as you mentioned, walked out on uh, him, his sister, and his mom. But there's still a smiling picture of him hanging in their house for symbolic reasons. Because his presence still hangs over the family. A lot of things in this play are for symbolic reasons. Because, like we mentioned, it's very autobiographical. Williams is getting a lot of things out of his system. So... This is worth noting because it's just so needlessly extra. So not only does Tom talk about that their dad left, but that when their dad left, he went to the trouble of sending them a postcard from Mexico that just said two words on it. Hello, goodbye. And that was the last that they heard from him. It just feels like the ultimate pretentious, like, kid at a poet beat night. Father left. Postcard arrived. Hello, goodbye. It's just gonna have the words hello and goodbye on it. Yeah. I was gonna say, don't nod at me. Yeah. That's how I would write it. Yeah. Yeah. Think it of you. <laughs> Wish you were here. Not even. It's just two words. Would you spend Happy money you're on a not here. for two words? I would steal the postcard. I would take someone else's. I would scratch off the address and put the address I want. Ah. And I'm gonna get into the play proper, but now I'm gonna talk about screen because it upsets me so much. There is a big projection screen that Williams created for the play that flashes images and pictures and whatnot and phrases throughout the show. Oh, that's right. I remember this bullshit. It's violently pretentious. Like, it's pretension with a knife. And it's, but it's confusing because I don't know why. I just, uh, you'll see. You'll see as I go through it. Hopefully you'll become as angry about it as I am because I need other people to be upset about this. So in scene one, for example, projected on the screen is the title of a French poem, Où sont les nages d'antan? Or, Where are the snows of yesteryear? This is for symbolism, because scene one <laughs> is about yearning for the bygone times. I'm sorry, I imagine Tom coming out, pointing at it and going, This is for symbolism, it's why it's here. <laughs> I wish this was the play that Tom just explains every just, little thing. He just points out, this is for symbols. We're going to, okay, throughout the course of this, we're going to rewrite the Glass Menagerie. We're going to make it better. Okay. There's not really these words on the wall, you see. It is a symbol. It makes sense, though, because as we're going to see, the only reason I can think is he has this screen is that he thinks his audience is all just fucking stupid. The scene starts, Tom joins the scene proper, which is dinner time with his mother, Amanda, and his younger sister, Laura. And so from the moment he sits down, Amanda starts yelling at him about table etiquette. Tom yells back that table etiquette sucks and his family sucks and only cigarettes understands me. And he gets up and goes downstage for smoke and Laura. The ultimate dinner. Yes, best dinner. Laura's just like, oh, I'm, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna get dessert. And Amanda's like, no, no, sit down. I'll get it. We've got to keep you looking fresh and pretty if a gentleman caller comes. And Laura's like, but I didn't invite any. And Amanda's already like, you never know what a gentleman caller might arrive. Why, in my day, I once had 17 gentlemen callers come at the same 
time. Now, I just, I read the script, you know, I didn't watch a thing. So this is just, this is what the Amanda in my head sounds like. I really liked your verbiage of she made 17 gentlemen callers come at the same time. <laughs> Damn straight. And uh, Tom's just like, holy shit, are you going to let her tell this story again? And Laura's like, you abandoned me for cigarettes. You let this happen. In our new version, Tom vapes, by the way. <laughs> Tom absolutely vapes. Yeah. <laughs> the Tom of today is vaping. And uh, Amanda goes on about how they had to find chairs for all 17 boys that showed up at her house and she had to entertain them all with, quote, her nimble wit and tongue. So, you know, interpret that however you wish. Ugh. Now, my thing, I'm not here to slut shame. If past Amanda wants to be running around town with 17 dudes, like, more power to her. The thing I'm hung up on is how they all ended up at her house at exactly the same time. I want to see that movie. That is like the ultimate Disney Channel, like, original <laughs> series. Like, oh, no, fucking Amanda's got three dates with three different guys. And it's just Amanda running about trying to put on these different characters for each guy. But there's fucking 17 of them. <laughs> she was making she was making milkshakes. They brought all the boys to the yard. <laughs> oh, that joke did not deserve that big a laugh. I hate you. I hate, no, because I had a much more perverse thought of what making milkshakes meant, and then I realized the actual joke, and then I got so furious. Good. A milkshake brings all the boys to the yard, and they're like, yum. Is there a reason you whispered that? Yes. It's ASMR. It's milkshake ASMR. No, no, we're not. ASMR Jay does not need to make a, and he's already leaning in. Hot and so hot in here. Hot and oh no no no, Here's no the thing. Nelly ASMR. Don't make me edit that. I don't know what a menagerie is. Can I drink a milkshake out of it? This is symbolism for what's happening in the play. <laughs> the menagerie is symbolism. So I can't drink a milkshake out of it. <laughs> no. I don't know what a menagerie is. Oh Jesus Christ. It's it's a it's like a it's like a yeah go on it's a collection of shit yes it's like a group of of stuff oh if it's a group of cups I could drink a milkshake out of it I guess anyway Amanda lives happily in this memory and describes the ways in which many of these gentlemen callers died horribly while an image of her as a sexy young socialite is projected onto this screen. Because Williams doesn't trust his audience's imaginations, I guess? Or he doesn't trust his actors? Like, it seems like a knock against whoever's playing Amanda, right? Like, I could just let her do her job and act, or I could My show you mother this was a sex pig. Look upon the wall, audience. See it. She was thick with double C's. Enjoy this. Look at my thick mother. <laughs> That's the remake's new name is Look at My Thick Mother, a Tennessee Williams adaptation. <laughs> We're gonna make so much money. <laughs> so as an aside, the director of the original Broadway production of Glass Menagerie opted not to use the screen during the performance. Like, he saw they, they saw the Chicago run. They were like, this is good. We're going to pick it up. It's going to go on Broadway. We are leaving that. That is not coming with us. <laughs> this shit sucks. Absolutely not. No. <laughs> so Amanda finishes her musings, turns towards Laura, potentially with her neck on like a, a, an 80 degree axis. And she does like a... 
Ah, yes, your gentlemen callers must be coming any minute now. How many do you think there will be? And Laura's like, none? Hopefully. Amanda's like, oh, well, that can't be right. There must have been a flood or a tornado. And the script directions just say, Tom utters another groan. <laughs> yeah, just like that. And then Laura just says she's not as popular as her mother was back in the day, and the scene ends. <laughs> so the scene two opens with the screen showing a picture of blue roses for reasons that you can rest assured will soon become aggressively, painfully apparent. But uh, it goes out. We see Laura sitting down, polishing her collection of glass animals, her glass menagerie. But then Amanda comes in, and, and then she hides the animals, which are all very small, and fit into a bowl, and she pretends to be typing at a typewriter. And uh, Laura asks how her mom's Daughters of the American Revolution meeting was. Instead of answering, Amanda has, like, a full-on shit fit. Like, her eyes, like, roll back into her head, and she tears down this poster Laura has on the wall of a typewriter keyboard diagram. And is just like, everything is ruined forever before sinking down onto a sofa. And Laura's just like, is something wrong you good you good fam <laughs> good fam and the screen shows a quote swarm of typewriters an elite <laughs> army of typewriters brought here to america to destroy tennessee williams yep and amanda tells laura that on the way to her her dar meeting she stopped off at rubicam's business college where Laura's been enrolled to learn typing and learn from her teachers that she dropped out after the first few days when they gave her a speed typing test and she got so anxious that she threw up. And I know I probably say this too much, but that's a big mood. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, at first Laura tries to argue that that's not true before being like, yeah, okay, fine, I did that. And she puts on some music, like the moody, is she a teen? Is she a teen or is she in her 20s? I think she has to be in her 20s because of a character that she interacts with, I believe is from high school with her. Okay. Well, it's a moody teen situation. And so she's acting like one. So she's like, I'm gonna put some music on. Which was much more labor intensive at that time. Like you couldn't just push a button. You had to like walk across the room and wind up the Victrola and shit. Which she does. Like, I don't know. What do you, what do you think she cranked up? Nelly. <laughs> <laughs> I do love this mental image of her restlessly, like, picking up the record, uh, putting it on there, cranking for, like, It's getting hot in here. No, no, she would would put on, she would do the one where it's like, but it's all in my head, and I think about it over and over again. And I chimed in with a, haven't you people ever heard of? (laughs) Closing the goddamn door. How could this happen to me? (laughs) (laughs) At which point Tom pokes his head back and he goes, This is symbolism. (laughs) (laughs) Keep it down. It sounds like there's a panic at the disco in here, closes. Jesus. So Laura admits that instead of going to school, she's just been hanging out at the zoo, specifically checking out the penguins and going to see movies, so just like living the dream. Uh, she tells Amanda that actively deceiving her was better than having to go back to school after barfing all over the floor. And then the screen shows the phrase, the crust of humility, which sounds like the worst pizza crust ever, frankly. Much worse than the cheese stuffed kind. 
And Amanda laments that nothing will become of her now. She's too nervous to have a career, but she's too shy to have gentlemen callers and get married. She's going to be a spinster with no muddy, hidden away in a tiny room with her glass menagerie and her crust. And honestly, to Laura, that probably doesn't sound too bad as long as her mother isn't there. You can't thank or fuck? What's wrong with you? <laughs> and Amanda's just like, come on, why can't you just marry a boy? Haven't you ever liked a boy? And Laura reveals that she did like a boy named Jim in high school and that he was handsome and smart and in the school play. And again, we can't just rely on her saying these things. We have to see a picture of handsome Jim on the screen. At which point Tom busts in, remember this face audience. He will become important later in the play. You will see him again. That, that is what it's doing. That's exactly what it's doing. Why is it there? I hate it. And so Laura says that he used to call her Blue Roses as a nickname because she was absent from school for a while after she had an attack of pleurosis, which is like a, a complication from pneumonia. And he was like, oh, where were you? And she's like, I have pleurosis. And he's like, what? Blue Roses? So no matter what Laura says, he can't really have been as smart as all that. Not smart or kind if he was like, oh, you had this horrible disease that causes you to cough and have horrible pains in your lungs. Ha <laughs> ha, blue roses. That's your nickname now. Anyway, he got engaged and is probably married now. So, you know, whatever. He's not, audience. Listen closely. <laughs> Pay attention. This play just belongs to John Malkovich now. <laughs> Look at me. Look at me. I am the Tennessee Williams now. <laughs> Amanda's already moved on from Jim, though. She's just like, don't worry, we're gonna get your ass married. And Laura just gasps tragically. Like, in the script notes, it says that she legitimately gasps. The, the stage directions are just so fucking over the top. It's just like, but mother, I'm crippled. Dun, dun, dun. Modern day, the pause, like, makes sense, because it could be mother, I'm gay like that's really that's what this rewrite needs to be just yeah it's like i don't need a husband i am into chicks mother i swing for the other fences <laughs> but it's weird this one because it's it's not like a surprise her mom knows it's referring to laura walks with like a little bit of a limp and amanda says don't you dare say that not because like she doesn't want her daughter to be like down on herself or like using ableist language against herself or whatever but because like calling yourself a cripple isn't charming and when you already have a defect working against you like a bum leg well then gosh darn it you've got to be charming as hell and you know who was charming your absentee runaway father that's who <laughs> and then the scene ends <laughs> tennessee williams is working through some shit yeah so the next scene opens with the screen reading, After the Fiasco! And Tom monologues at the audience that the fiasco in question is Laura bombing out of business school. Not Lupe Fiasco? No, not Lupe Fiasco. <laughs> wow, that's a deep pull. So what do you know who Lupe Fiasco is? Always. Um, and now Amanda has become absolutely obsessed with finding her daughter a husband. And yes, the image of a gentleman caller holding a bouquet of roses appears on the screen. At this point, I, just like I said, I'm not sure if the screen is because William thinks the audience is dumb as hell. If it's like a postmodern device meant to be like, I, that, that's what a couple of the things that I read where it's like, oh, it's a postmodern device. It's meant to be ironic because it's just so obvious. It's a Like this irony. whole play. This whole yeah. play is violently <laughs> obvious. Or maybe it's just like a cool new toy. 
that he was just super into playing with. That it was just like, look what I can do with this thing. Isn't this neat? Like, maybe that's just as deep as it went. I mean, I still do that. If I find a new tool in Photoshop, I'm like, I'm gonna fucking put this in every design I make for the next month. That might have been it. Like, yeah. he might have just been, yeah, it's like, like I, could put, I could put fucking pictures on this shit during my play? Fuck yeah. <laughs> So in the meantime, Amanda tries to sell magazine subscriptions over the phone to her friends, and it's like when your old friend from high school starts messaging you about, like, pyramid scheme essential oils on Facebook. Then her and Tom get into a screaming match about essentially nothing, and Tom threatens to abandon them because he hates his job and he hates her, etc., etc. This is probably the only part of the play I genuinely enjoy, by the way, because Tom does fucking nothing for the rest of it, and this is the only part where Tom does anything, and that's why I loved it as a kid. Is it, are you talking? Is this the scene where he's screaming about seventeen gentlemen callers going over the moon and working in opium dens and shit like that? Yeah, because she, because she's like, you know, what do you do? And he's like. I go to the movies and she's like, no, you don't. He's like, okay, fine. I'm going to pro- opium dens with prostitutes and stuff. By the way, I pulled up this monologue as well. He goes, you think I'm crazy about the warehouse? He bends fiercely towards her, which I hope is a 90 <laughs> degree angle. <laughs> you think I'm in love with the continental shoemakers? It's like, okay, so yeah, it is Tennessee Williams. <laughs> By the way, that's up on the screen when he says that. Fuck. <laughs> and he ends it by calling her, you ugly babbling old witch. Yep. And then uh, as after he calls her that, he puts on his overcoat to, to go leave. And he swings his arm around and he breaks some of Laura's glass animals and she yells, my glass. Pause. Menagerie. My <laughs> glass menagerie. <laughs> It's the funniest fucking thing to me because it's just pa- there's this pause baked into it and the script is just my glass menagerie <laughs> the melodrama <laughs> and then Amanda's so mad about the argument she doesn't even notice she's just like you apologize for calling me a witch but Tom immediately like feels bad and is like oh no I broke the glass and then the scene ends. The next scene's Tom returning home in the early morning from a night out drinking, and he tries and fails to sneak in, and Laura asks him where he's been. He drunkenly tells her he's been out at the movies all night, and then he also saw a stage show where a magician escaped from a coffin without removing a single nail, and he says that it's easy to get into a coffin, but how do you get out of one without even removing a nail? And the picture of their father that hangs in the background lights up. (laughs) It lights the fuck up. Because Tennessee this Williams is like is that. symbolism. <laughs> uh, then from offstage, Amanda calls, rise and shine. And Tom says, I'll rise, but I won't shine. That's your job. <laughs> it's such a pouty, whiny fucking thing for a grown ass man to say. I love it. <laughs> Don't tell him to smile. not going to shine. <laughs> Laura asks him to make up with Amanda because it'll make everyone's lives easier. And he does. But she's a passive aggressive pain in the ass the whole time. But like, honestly, what else is new? Also, she wants him to find a guy to set Laura up with. But again, what else is new? So he does. In fact, the next scene opens with the screen flashing the word Annunciation, which Wikipedia tells me is a reference to the Bible when an angel tells Mary that the Savior is coming. I thought it was a <laughs> reference to the way John Malkovich speaks. 
Tennessee Williams knew. Yeah. You could sense it. An angel of the Lord came upon him and said, one day you will be visited by a beautiful bald man, but he'll have hair at the time, and his name shall be Malkovich, and the world will rejoice. (laughs) So Tom and Amanda are standing out on the fire escape, and she tells him that he should comb his hair more. Because he looks so untidy. And while their father may have been a bastard who ran out on them. And she doesn't want Tom to emulate him in any other way. Wink, wink. He sure did always look tidy. Tom goes and smokes a cigarette. Because cigarettes are his only real friends. If at any point during the play you don't know what Tom's stage direction should be. It's <laughs> always smoking. Tom goes to smoke a cigarette. <laughs> Pretty much. Then he talks about dance halls. He just he gives a horrible, pretentious monologue that I'm not going to repeat until Amanda joins him on the porch and they look at the moon and they talk about wishes. Tom says he's found a gentleman caller for Laura. Oh, also, as he says, there's like a massive musical sting. Like there's been music, as, as you point out, there's a fiddler in the wings. There's been music drifting in the background of the whole play. But like I'm mentioning this one because it is a goddamn soap opera telenovela moment. <laughs> like it's it's specifically noted in there. He's like, I found a gentleman caller. Like, bum bum bum. <laughs> or like the what is it? Like the fan? Like bum 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 bum. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, this would be even better. I found a gentleman caller. But um bum 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 bum. It's Tim the Toolman Taylor. (laughs) (laughs) No, it would be Tom the Toolman Taylor. That would make the last scene of this play so much better. (laughs) (laughs) If it was Tim Allen through the whole play. If it was just Tim Allen. Doing Coke. Yep. I mean it's assumed. Oh, and then we get an image of the gentleman caller projected on the screen, of course. Because it's not enough to just say it. You gotta show him. He's there. He's up there. Tom says he's coming tomorrow. And of course, Amanda freaks out because, you know, that doesn't give her any time to polish the wedding silver and clean the windows and repaper the walls and put something meaningful and deeply symbolic on the screen projector. (laughs) And Tom's just like, Jesus Christ, I can't win with you. And Amanda asks what his name is. And Tom says, James O'Connor. And Amanda's like, wow, that's an Irish ass name. Does he drink? He better not drink. Your father drank. And we all know what happened with your father because it's uh, literally all we ever talk about. And also you drink. And this gives us another parallel with your father. This is what we call foreshadowing, Tom. Are you picking up on this? This is foreshadowing (laughs) audience steps out of character comes back in no amanda just suddenly sounds like that she just turns the audience (laughs) she just has john malkovich's voice tom tells amanda not to get her hopes up too much because who could ever love laura someone with the audacity to be crippled shy and collect figurines like gross and amanda's just like wow I thought I was supposed to be the dickhead character in this play. Jesus, dude. No, it's all of us. (laughs) We are all terrible. (laughs) There's only one of us who's all right, and it's the crippled shy girl. And then Tom goes to the movies. His only other friend that's not cigarettes. All right. We're in the next to last scene, folks, is the home stretch. Tom delivers a monologue about how his friend Jim was Of just course a- he fucking delivers a monologue. <laughs> what the fuck else would he be doing? 
His friend Jim was just insanely good at everything in high school. People thought he'd go on to be a real somebody in life, but nope. He ended up working at the same shitty warehouse as Tom. In case you haven't put together yet, yes, this is this is gonna be old Blue Rose's Jim. And he says they're friendly at work, because Tom's the only one who remembers that Jim was, like, cool in high school. And Jim knows that Tom writes poetry in the bathroom at work and, and doesn't immediately try to give him a swirly. <laughs> you know it can't be good poetry, guys. Like, you know it can't. It's probably all pop-punk lyrics about, like, how if he could just get out of this town. And so he doesn't exactly invite Jim over to specifically meet Laura as much as he just invites Jim over with no mention of Laura whatsoever. It's gonna be great. It's, it's gonna go fine. It will not, audience. <laughs> <laughs> so Tom finishes his monologue and the screen projector reads, The Ascent of a Coming Foot. I don't know. It's a shoe joke. It's a shoe joke? Yeah. You know what goes inside shoes? Feet. I suppose. Are we sure the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles villains, the foot, are not showing up to this? <laughs> yes, that's what it is. The ascent of a coming foot. The Foot Clan is coming. <laughs> yeah. They're no match for the putties, though. Oh, man, that would be such a better... Okay, our version of the Glass Menagerie, instead of Jim is showing up, the Foot Clan comes. <laughs> and then I'll guess also the putties. Yeah. And then, so the Ninja Turtles and the Power Rangers also have to come to fight them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And the whole time Tom's in front of them narrating all of the action behind him. Yes. They were named after Renaissance painters, you see. <laughs> they were mutated by ooze and discovered by this tiny rat boy. The rat boy raised them. He is Splinter. <laughs> and meanwhile, there's like epic <laughs> scenes happening behind him. And he's paying no attention to it. This is so much better. Five young high schoolers all discover the power of their swords. <laughs> it was said that they were teenagers with attitude. <laughs> uh, no. Instead, we get Amanda stuffing powder puffs down Laura's bra to, to give her what I imagine to be some very awkwardly shaped titties. <laughs> and uh, she tells Laura that they're called gay deceivers. <laughs> Called what? Gay deceivers. Gay deceivers? Yes. Throws them off the scent. I guess. What did they mean? I don't know. I don't know. It was the 1940s. Uh, at this point, Laura is described in the script notes as, quote, a piece of translucent glass touched by light. The fucking costume workers are like, what the, how the fuck do I do that? <laughs> how do I make that happen? But then Amanda's like, how can I make this about me? Puts on a dress and is like, look, look at me, Laura. This is what I wore when I was a young woman entertaining 11 billion gentlemen callers. And then, <laughs> then she comes back to Earth and is like, man, I hope your brother and Mr. Jim O'Connor get here soon. And Laura's like, who? And because it's Tennessee Williams soap opera nightmare and we're just living in it, the projector screen flashes the words, not Jim. <laughs> And then Tom and Jim get to the door and it says, The opening of a door! Because also now it's like a demented fucking Hitchcock movie and I am losing my goddamn mind, Scotty. <laughs> Why did you do this to me? I thought we were friends. We could have been talking about yellow-spotted lizards. But no, you wanted to talk about fucking... The door is opening, audience! Here comes Jim! <laughs> no, Megan, I need to stop you here. <laughs> Oh, please do. So Gay Deceivers is the title of a film from 1969. <laughs> that 
that that would have been post this play, but okay. They picked it up and ran with it. Yeah. I mean, we want to talk about Tom going to the movies if he saw this one. No, he wouldn't have. This play takes place in the 30s. Yeah, but then he moves on. Is it a porn? No, it's about two men who pose as homosexuals not to get drafted into Vietnam. Now, I'm on the Wikipedia page. I think that's the one that that clip is from. (laughs) This is the one that that clip is from, where it's like, my my peonies, they're marigolds. Where it's like, I may not know my flowers, but I know a bitch when I see one. (laughs) I, meanwhile, I'm actually on the gay deceiver Wikipedia breakdown. A gay deceiver may refer to a sentient car slash aircraft slash time machine character in the 1980 Robert Island novel, The Number of the Beast, a highwayman, or a type of bustle worn by Western ladies from 1870 to about 1905. We have fallen down a very deep hole here, gentlemen. There are three separate media entries for Gay Deceiver. A 1926 Lost film called The Gay Deceiver. A 1969 gay-themed comedy or La Inganadora, The Gay Deceiver, which is a cha-cha-cha written by Enrique Corin in 1953. Holy shit. So wait, it is a type of bustle worn by... Western ladies from 1870. That's what he just, he just, okay. yeah, he just said it. Come on, Fine. keep up, keep up. Here we go, this is it. This is the clip I'm talking about. That it's, it's, it's an internet thing, but it's from the gay deceivers. You can take your lovely peonies, and besides you silly queen, they're not even peonies. They're marigolds. Good God, I think she's right. They are marigolds. I may not know my flowers, but I know a bitch when I see one. <laughs> <laughs> So you mean to tell me, Meg, is they shoved a couple of fake queens in her top? Yes. Alright. Yes. Or possibly what was that? A bustle. An, an autonomous like car or something. She got a time novel? machine in her titties. Yeah, she, she got she got a time machine in her titties. Oh my god. Um so then they're at the door. Amanda asks Laura to open the door and she don't want to do it. And they have a back and forth approximately twenty times. Before Amanda's like, open the fucking door, I'll open it with your goddamn face. And she's like, she'll be there in a moment. And Laura (laughs) opens the door. Jim does not remember Laura. And really barely notices her at all. And instead focuses on trying to get Tom to join this, like, public speaking class he's taking. But Tom confides him that he has no interest in public speaking. That he wants adventure. More importantly, he wants out of this apartment. He tells Jim that he's applied for the Union of Merchant Seamen. And paid his dues (laughs) to join... God damn it. <laughs> Paid his dues to join them instead of paying the lighting bill. And Jim's like, well, you're going to regret that when the lights go off. And Tom's, you know, like, well, I'm going to be gone by then. So I don't care. Because I'm a dick. Yeah. Jim says, like, that's a dick thing to do. And Tom's like, yeah, well, my dad did it. Being a dick runs in the family. That makes it okay. My daddy issues tell me my actions are perfectly justified. <laughs> Wink. Then they go eat dinner, but Amanda does this, like, really weird Southern Belle baby talk thing. It's, it's so uncomfortable. <laughs> yes, it's just like, I do declare, I'm just a little old baby. You're just, you're <laughs> such a big, strong man. I'm a little old baby, Jim. I hate you. <laughs> so fucking weird like it's it's supposed to be fucking weird at least in the in the context of the play it's supposed to be making everyone uncomfortable and it is meanwhile laura faints before she can even make it to the dinner table and has to go lie down on the living room couch 
sparing herself this whole awkward fucking dog and pony show. In the final scene, thank God, they're finishing dinner when the light flickers out and Amanda asks Tom about Chekhov's lighting bill. So, you know, so much for being (laughs) gone before that became a thing. And the projector screen agrees and flashes a ha- God. <laughs> so I don't know if it's laughing at him or prompting what Williams assumes is a dipshit audience. Like, this is the part where you laugh at Tom because he is a dumb bastard man. Do you remember when he said that he did not pay the lighting bill? That is why the lights are out. This is a funny moment. He has been caught in a lie. Laugh, laugh, you pathetic cuckolds of the American theater system. (laughs) Jesus, Tennessee. (laughs) So Amanda makes Tom clean up in the kitchen with her and sends Jim to keep Laura company. Jim is super chill because this really isn't a weird situation for him, but Laura is keyed the fuck up because this is apparently the only guy she ever had a crush on ever. Yeah. They get to talking, and eventually he remembers that they knew each other, and she's like, Yeah, no wonder you didn't remember me at first. I was such a nobody freak in high school with my terrible bum leg and my weird shyness. and As opposed to now, where I'm normal. <laughs> and Jim is just like, Wow, okay, no, you're, you're fine. Like, really, you're fine. Yeah. It's okay. <laughs> Quick aside, when I was in college, they had like a directing class. And at the end of the semester, every student had to pick a scene from a play and basically get two other students to do it. I did two of them, if I remember correctly. And fun fact, that teacher said, don't you dare pick fucking Glass Menagerie. None of you pick Glass Menagerie. Well, the second time I did it, the dipshit picked Glass Menagerie and picked this scene. A scene where two characters sit on the ground and talk to each other. There is no fucking meat on the directorial bones of this. And it was the worst experience. And that says a lot because the first time I did One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and I had to play the Native American. I look like a Native Irishman. (laughs) It's the fact that it's like, oh, Jack Nicholson and a fucking leprechaun's up here performing this scene. (laughs) There's the Seminoles... There's the Mikasuki, the Iroquois, and the O'Flannerys. <laughs> <laughs> Who could forget? Yeah. Scotty O'Flannerys. <laughs> Noted Native American. Yeah, so I could see how that would be a, a bad, this is a bad scene to be directed in because they're just sit. I mean, I guess they get, they get up and they waltz at one point. Oh no, I think they cut the waltz. So the only movement, literally the only movement in this scene. She was a bad director. She was not there at that school to be a director. She just had to take it because it was one of our classes. And I was like, this is a mistake, but yeah, I'll do it. And that's the scene where I got to talk about like, ha ha ha, fuck your disease, blue roses. It's true. That is pretty much what happens is he he remembers her and is like, oh, that's right. You're the blue roses girl. Like that's the past tense version of being like, oh, you're shitty boy, Terry. I remember you shit your pants in ninth grade. Yeah. Ah, fuck you. Let's waltz. <laughs> now we dance. But Laura does get the courage to ask about the girl that he was supposed to be engaged to, and Jim reveals that it was never actually a thing. And emboldened now, she she asks Jim if he wants to, you know, check out her glass. Sneak a peek at the old menagerie. <laughs> she lets him hold her favorite animal, which is a small unicorn that she says is so old that if you breathe wrong, it'll break. But it's okay. She trusts him. What do you think happens, RJ? I caught you, but you weren't paying attention. 
What were you looking at? Was it Reddit? Was it Twitter? A it was a video of a doggy. Aww. <laughs> Thought he was watching the gay deceiver. He's watching the full flick. Yeah, yeah, he's just all up on the gay deceiver now. Maybe pay attention while we're doing a show, asshole. So what, what, what's the question? Audience, what do you think happens when she hands him this very dangerously breakable unicorn? What do you think this character does with it? He takes his daddy issues out on it. He's not the one with it. That's Tom. This is Jim. How long, how long you been gone, champ? Everybody, what year is it? Everybody has daddy issues. Just take a leap of faith with me. Takes a little nibble. Yeah, yeah, yes. He puts it in his mouth. I just bites, and Laura's just like, "What?" It's like the fucking scene at the end of Frozen where Hans reveals he's a bad guy, but instead he just puts the unicorn head in his mouth and bites it off. This is I like this is going in our new our new glass menagerie. This wasn't rock candy. How many licks does it take? It it breaks. It, it, it breaks. Yeah, everything So breaks. if you were worried about Tennessee Williams introducing a fourth character who would be good for Laura, have no worries, <laughs> listeners. It's okay. But it's it's okay. It happens while they're waltzing sexily. Yeah. And it's just the horn that breaks off, and Laura's like, it's fine. I'll just pretend he had an operation to make him just like the rest of the horses. Less freakish. He was so lonely before. Do you see the metaphor I'm going with here, Jim? No, she, she turns to the audience and suddenly she has the John Malkovich voice. This is symbolism, audience, for my bum leg. And Jim says that somebody ought to build up her confidence and kiss her, damn it. So he kisses her. But also, I, I guess somebody ought to just run her confidence right back into the fucking ground again. Because right after that, he tells her that while he may not be engaged to that girl from high school... He is still actually engaged to someone. Wop wop. It's okay. You'll get him again, champ. Have fun with your dumb fucking horse now. Bye. Bye. Actually, she no. She gives him the broken unicorn. She says it's a souvenir, um, as a way of saying, you know, way to break me, fuckface. At this point, uh, the script notes give the director two options for the screen projector that he can either show the image of a gentleman caller leaving or the phrase. Things have a way of turning out so badly. <laughs> that got my dolphin laugh out. That got the dolphin out. That's good. So, you know, you choose. Dealer's choice. Uh, then Amanda comes in, absolutely fails to read the room, and then Jim leaves. Amanda finds out that he was engaged and screams at Tom, who claims he had no idea, and quick, does he leave for a cigarette or the movies? Which one? Off the cuff. Smoke or movie? Smoke or movie? movie Smoking movie. at the movies. Set the movie theater on fire. <laughs> Smoke some celluloid. <laughs> Free base of celluloid, I suppose, would be better. He goes to the movies, but let's just assume he smokes at the movies and burns the theater down. Let's let's say he does, like, uh, Inglorious Bastards. Yes! Also, Hitler was in the theater. This is our new glass yes. menagerie. <laughs> And then he gives a uh, monologue to the audience to the effect of, And so I fucking ditched them forever. Felt kind of shitty about doing it to Laura, though. The end. Finn. <laughs> and that's the glass menagerie. Jesus Christ. He had nothing to do with it. No, there is no God here. Before I jump very briefly into adaptations, as, as Scotty collects himself, there was a little extra biographical information you were saving for the end, RJ. 
Yes, so as we've picked up on now, this is just broken. The Glass Menagerie, a version of history that focused on uh, Ten's life and the things that had an impact on Ten's life, is his older sister's mental illness. His sister Rose was diagnosed with schizophrenia. And her behavior became so troubling that Mama Williams opted to have Rose lobotomized, which required Rose to take residence in mental health institutions for the rest of her life. Once Ten became financially successful, he used his royalties from his profitable works to support Rose in an attempt to provide her a better quality of life. However, before this point, he kind of like, you know, when he was taking his trips around the world, he kind of lost touch with the family, including the sister, so he kind of felt bad about that. Well, he pulled a Tom. He, he kind of just took off, and then he heard about her being lobotomized after the fact. Now, did his sister have, like, a, a someone she knew in high school that referred to her as Blitzophrenia? Perhaps that might have been something. <laughs> Would have been more subtle. <laughs> yeah. Also, the fact that her name is fucking Rose. Like, wow, dude. Yeah, well. And he's like, how do I work this in? Rose, Rose, blue roses. All right, I gotta look up. He's like researching medical conditions that kind of sound like, it's like, I can, pleurosis, I can work with this. Because it had to be a fucking medical condition. I couldn't give this girl anything happy in her life. I had to fuck her up in high school too. So he was definitely carrying some guilt there about uh, familial abandonment. Many issues. Yeah. What are we supposed to fucking learn? What is the life lesson you're supposed to take away from this? Everyone you know and love will leave you or fucking try to make you fuck random individuals off the street. That's the point of this fucking play. I learned about gay deceivers. (laughs) We all learned about gay deceivers. Well, you know, some people, Scotty, feel the same way as you. Including Warner Brothers. (laughs) So... There are two major film adaptations of The Glass Menagerie. We mentioned the second one with John Malkovich. The first one was from 1950 and stars no one I've ever heard of except Kirk Douglas as Jim. So they had Tennessee Williams write the screenplay for it. And uh, But this is the fun part. So Warner Brothers Studios, they took him aside and they were like, Tenny, baby, darling, we love The Glass. We adore The Menagerie. But what if it had a happy ending? And I have a quote from Williams here. He says, quote, I think it is all right to suggest the possibility of someone else coming, and that someone else remaining as insubstantial as an approaching shadow in an alley, which appears in conjunction with the narrative line, the long-delayed but always expected something that we live for. It strikes me as constituting a sufficiently hopeful possibility for the future, symbolically and even literally, which is as much as the essential character of the story will admit without violation. So he's like, all right, I could, you know, fine we can give like the shadow of like maybe sometime in the future i don't think that that would be violating the essence of the story you wish to have a happy ending to my play fine i will give you the shadowy figure of the man who killed batman's parents walking down this alleyway is that happy enough ending for you you fucker and warner brothers was like no actually that's not good enough And they hired another screenwriter to go behind his back and create a magical second gentleman caller named Richard to come and rescue Laura. And Williams was fucking pissed. What did it fucking turn into Tangled all of a sudden? Like Flynn Rider (laughs) swoops in and is like, I've got you, come with me. Basically, yeah, at the last minute, the second guy just shows up and is like, Laura, I'm here for you and I love you. And the movie fucking tanked. (laughs) 
Like, he was so angry. And yeah, apparently it was just a bad movie. So then in 1987, Paul Newman was like, I can do this better. And he cast John Malkovich as Tom with hair. And then uh, Karen Allen from the first Indiana Jones movie uh, was Laura. And people were like, this is fine. I suppose. Whatever. Yeah. It holds a 67% on Rotten Tomatoes. The The biggest strike against it seems to be that it's just kind of boring. Everything I've read is like Malky carried it. Malky was the only reason you went. So that brings us to the part of the show that we always get to. And that is... Hey, RJ. Sup? <laughs> Let me get to the end of it, huh? The Glass Menagerie. Yeah. Good or bad? Hot in here. Yeah. I mean, it's like you take Willie Woman, but you kind of turn him in to Al Bundy. Boom. You got to play, baby. Is that your take? Yeah. The shoe salesman who dies on the inside. We all die on the inside. I'm dying on the inside right now. Yeah, see? So it's perfect. It encapsulates <laughs> America. What more could you possibly ask for? Hey, Megan. Yeah, RJ. The Glass Menagerie. The Glass Menagerie. Gay or Deceiver. Good or bad. So, the, whether in person or online, I've seen most of the plays that we've covered on the show, with the exception, I think, of, like, Titus Andronicus, or the importance of being earnest, and then I guess also this one. And, like, it killed on Broadway. Clearly people enjoyed it, but j- having just reading the script and only seeing, like, the script directions and the dialogue, which is so insanely over the top, and I just, I can't deal with it. It's so wild. And then the fucking screen projector. Like I said, (laughs) I read three different papers on this fucking screen projector while preparing for this episode, and, and no one liked it. In fact, most directors outright hate it and choose to eliminate it from the performance, and I can understand why. It's gonna haunt me until I die. I don't understand this show. It just seems so pretentious and over the top and just, like, belittling to its audience. And, like I said, everything is just, this is symbolism. And I maybe I need to see it, but if if, you're, if Scotty's anything to go by, that seems like a bad idea. So I'm just going to say no. No good. Bad. I think our version that we're workshopping here, though, is going to be fantastic. <laughs> and so, hey, Scotty. The glass menagerie. The glass menagerie. Good or bad? Just. Because, <laughs> like, with you, it's the symbolism that's getting you. And, like, yes, the pretension is there. But for me, it's like, one of my favorite shows is It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. A show where each character is arguably the worst fucking person alive. But that's the comedy, is enjoying watching these people be such glorious fuck-ups in their life. This show was like, no. <laughs> let's do that exact same thing, but let's not make it funny, and let's make it very pretentious. So let's just make a bunch of shitty characters. Oh, wait, but if they're all shitty, it's not gonna seem right. We need one good person in it. What should we do with them cripple them (laughs) cripple them make them shy make them so unable to go through life on their own that they need the help of these other horrible people it is a garbage dookie play for bad people i i 
I tried my best to find it, but I'm almost positive at one point during college they asked us to write a report on The Glass Menagerie, and I just wrote an essay shitting on the play. Like, just doing nothing but talking crap about how bad this play is. On that note, I want to point out to everyone, Wright State University recently launched their virtual theater, and the first play they chose to help launch the virtual theater (laughs) that they performed over Zoom is The Glass Menagerie. Oh, shit. <laughs> Do you think they did They did that thing on Zoom where you can eliminate your background and they just put all of the fucking film projector shit in the background? <laughs> that would be so good. Yeah. Oh, God, that'd be amazing. So the time of COVID is the time for Glass Menagerie. <laughs> this is symbolism. It was a great play. I enjoyed it immensely. It very much gave me a sense of ennui and depression, and it will fuel me for the next 30 years. So that will about do it for this episode of Oh No Lit Class. Scotty. Yes. Where, where, where <laughs> Scotty Malkovich, when you're not on a hundred and some odd people's other podcasts, where can people find you doing your podcasts? Yes, if you enjoy the sound of my voice, you can enjoy it more by going to www.aloadofpurebs.com. There are multiple shows you can check out that I'm on there. Or if you just want to not hear this voice but see what this voice says, go to twitter.com at scottymo, S-C-O-T-T-Y-E-M-O, and that is where I'm at on there. Hit me up if you need a podcast guest or a John Malkovich impersonator. I am there. I'm ready to go. Thank you so much for coming on and uh, reliving this trauma and visiting new trauma upon us. It is symbolism for 2020. (laughs) It sure is. (laughs) (laughs) If you want to continue sharing the trauma, you can come at us at at onolitclasspod on Twitter. And all of our other things at odolickclass.com, per the usual, per the always. And our next episode will be on July 9th. Until then, I'm Megan. I'm RJ. And I'm John Malkovich. (laughs) We love you. Bye. Hot fact. Ethan Hawke is Tennessee Williams' great nephew. Whoa. I think he's just all right. Okay, yeah, no, we're done here. (laughs) Okay. I'll have you know, I practiced that impression for like three hours on Tuesday (laughs) just for this. One of my co-hosts fell prey to me sending him like five different voice messages as John Malkovich. Just like, hello, I'm going to Starbucks. Would you like anything from Starbucks? (laughs)